We're going to start with the set-aside prayer. God, please set aside everything I think I know about you, God, the steps, recovery, the big book, what's best for me, what's best for others, especially help me let go of all my old ideas so I can live on your spiritual truth. Heavenly Father, help us to carry your message tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we started We Agnostics, which is my favorite chapter because we're in it. And But we've read pages 44 to 45, and um, it's on the site for those listening. You can listen to that one. But I went through what We Agnostics means, what they're trying to convey in this chapter. But they... First five paragraphs, one, two, three, four, three, four, five, six paragraphs really outline uh, the, the deal. And then they're going to talk about the solution to the deal starting on page 45. And they tell us what makes us an alcoholic, the distinction between alcoholic and non-alcoholic. Can you quit entirely or when or you have little control over the amount you take. And it says that that is the case, and this is the key line, you don't hear this as the topic at meetings. You're suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Intensive outpatient therapy is helpful, but it won't conquer this. Going to a 30-day treatment center won't conquer this. We have to conquer our ego, conquer our self-centeredness, and the only thing that can do that is the spirit, is God. And I need to experience his power since I have none. And I don't know of any illness in medicine that only a spiritual experience can conquer. So the pharmacy you have to go through to, to treat this disease has to have the right medicine. And AA has a pharmacy in this book, these steps. And if we follow these steps, we'll get the right medicine. And the medicine is God. And it says, uh, uh, you may think it's impossible to have this experience, but you have two choices. You can be doomed in alcoholic death or live on a spiritual basis. It's not hard, you know. They got a gun to your head, and they say, you're either going to die or live on a spiritual basis. And they're telling us that's hard to face. And what do they mean? They mean that you're not going to, most alcoholics can't see it. They don't think it's that bad yet. They can't see that they're doomed. They think there's a third door. They think they have a way out that's not a spiritual experience. They have a plan. This book won't work for any alcoholic who has a plan that's their plan. It has to be this plan to work this book and to get what they had. Now, you may have a plan that works. I'm not saying that. But if you don't have a plan, and you have a hopeless condition of mind in the body, if you follow this plan, you'll get what they had. You'll have a solution. You'll be recovered from a hopeless condition of mind in the body. But most alcoholics can't see it, so they don't die. They, die. they don't even get to AA. Very few alcoholics ever get here. And then the ones who come, they just come and go and come and go. And I heard somebody say it's a sea of faces in AA, and do, having done this meeting in 15th year, I can't, can't tell you how many people I've seen come and go, and I hope they're okay. Pray for them. 
And it says, uh, there are those who cannot and will not completely give themselves this simple program. You ever heard that read? It's read every meeting. Who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. They can't see the truth about themselves. They can't see that they're doomed to alcoholic death or live a spiritual life. Now, I think when we can see that, that moment of complete defeat is a gift from God. I think it's a moment of grace, that, and I could see it. And then I could, I asked God to help me, but then he's not gonna, I have to be completely willing and desperate to seek him, and then he's there. But he's not gonna do it for me. Do you get that? We have to do certain actions. God can and will if he sought. But he can't and won't if we don't seek him. And the rest of the book from page 63 is how you seek God and allow him to work. And it also gives a warning here. We have to face the fact, that's, see the truth. Again, you see it? That I must find the spiritual basis of life, dash or else. Now, or else is not good. You get it? And we have to see it. We have to face the fact. And some people never face it. Now, some people face it completely, and they see the two doors, and then they don't take any action, and then the ego rebuilds, and we don't see them anymore. It's a bad disease, because the ego is always trying to win. And we have to destroy self-centeredness. That's what Bill said the whole deal is, but he says it's simple, not easy. It requires a destruction of self-centeredness. And we have to keep destroying it all the time. It never goes away. And then it says, if I had a better code of morals or better philosophy of life, then I would have recovered. But I can't do that. I don't have the power. It says, I could will these things with all my might on page 45, but the power isn't there. Then they say it very clearly. My human resources and all the human resources out there as marshaled by the will are not sufficient. They failed utterly. Now, failed utterly means failed utterly. Remember, half measures will give us nothing. And I don't have the power. I don't have the power today. I have to constantly allow God to work in my life. We were talking about the, what they call the nine-step promises, or really the world of the spirit promises, when you're with God. And when you're with God, these things happen. And when you're not with God, they don't happen. So I had lack of power. That was my dilemma. A dilemma means I have two choices equally undesirable. And so I had to find a power by which I could live. So I have to see I have lack of power. And then I have to see that I need a power by which I could live. And they should have put this in here, it can't be me. I was the problem. Now they're going to get to that on page 60 to 63, but I was the problem. My whole life is very simple. I was the manager, and I, was the, I had the wrong manager. It should have been God. Now, why did I choose to manage my life before I ever drank? Because I had this delusion that if I could just manage life well, things would work out. Now, what did that mean? I wanted approval. I wanted to be loved. I wanted people to like me. So I tried to manipulate the world so I would be OK, feel OK from the world. And it never worked, because I could never manage it well enough. And what made me that way? What made me want approval, want to be loved? It's just happened. But all alcoholics have that. We all want approval. We all want to be loved. We want to be appreciated. 
And we all have that. We have that before we drink, but drinking fixes that. And so I need a power by which I live, and it had to be a power greater than me. And then my favorite words, too. Obviously. Obviously. It has to be obvious. It can't be me anymore. That's what the first step is all about. That's what they take 45 pages of doctor's opinion to get me to see. I need a power, and it can't be me. But then here's a really good question. Where and how can I find this power? Isn't that a good question? And that's what this book is all about, isn't it? That's what it says. Well, that's exactly what this book is about. This book is not a self-help book. This is a book on where and how to find the power, God help. This is a God help book. And God won't help me if I'm still running the show. So the book is going to tell me how to be face and be rid of the things in me that were blocking me from God so God can work in my life. The main object of the book is enable me to find a power greater than me which will solve my problems. So I only had one problem. What was my one problem? My problem was that I consciously separated from God. And there's one solution, conscious contact with God. So it enables me to find the conscious contact with God, a power greater than myself, a relationship with him that solves my problem. When I'm with God, I'm not resentful. I'm not fearful. I'm not making bad decisions. I'm not being irritable, restless, and discontent. And also, when I'm with God, I won't need to drink, and I won't want to. And if I do, he'll say, bad idea. And the obsession is just relieved. Has that happened to anybody here? Yes. That means we've written a book which we believe to be spiritual as well as moral. And it means, moral means truthfully, ethically correct, spiritual relative to belief. And it means, of course, we're going to talk about God. So now we're done with alcohol. They've talked about alcohol, how we can't control it, how we make decisions to drink it when we shouldn't, and it's insane, our powerless over alcohol, right? And they say, now we're going to talk about God. Because our real problem is our separation from God, right? And if we had contact with God, then we wouldn't need to drink. Our lives would have been a lot better if I'd started working the steps at like eight, maybe seven. My life would have been a lot better. Anybody make bad decisions in their life before they came to AA? Because I made decisions based on self. It put me in a position to be harmed. I harmed others. Didn't do it on purpose. I didn't know any better. Did anybody think their motives were bad when they came to AA? The motives were always good. They didn't understand this. Did anybody come here because people just didn't understand it? They didn't appreciate how hard I tried. Didn't appreciate because I, I was a mess. Maybe I was the only one like that. Was I the only one like that? Anybody else like that? No? Were you like that? Okay, good. Good, I feel better. And so now they're going to talk about God. Now here difficulty arises. Somebody told me about they saw a guy at the meeting Monday who didn't like me three or four months ago because we met and I talked about God too much. And so he texted me that he thought that he needed somebody less intensive than me to help him. And I said, fine, that's great. I still love you. And uh, somebody saw him and 
he's, he's sober and that's great but um, it says here difficulty arises. Many times we talk to a new man and watch his hope rise as we discuss his problems to explain our fellowship. Now the fellowship in those days was working the steps. It wasn't meetings. It was being with a group of people who were working the steps, living the spiritual life, and having you live it with them. They had quiet time. They meditated on scripture. It was different than it is today. But his face falls when we speak of spiritual matters, especially when we mention God. I think one of my greatest character defects to a lot of people is that I talk about God too much. I've heard that a lot. You know, I liked the meeting, but you talked about God too much. And I said, well, I'm sorry. But, um, you know, uh, that's the deal. Why do people not want to hear about God? They don't want to give up on themselves. They really aren't done. They're not completely defeated. If you're completely defeated, you have the desperation of a drowning man. And you'll reach out, and you'll get a flimsy reed, and then it becomes the hand of God. Remember page 28. And that's so true. The flimsy reed is the first person you meet in AA, the one who offers to call you and have coffee and read the book with you. And then as you do that, and you work the steps, this flimsy reed becomes the hand of God. And it just happens. It's just a process. And so, I don't think we're going to cover much tonight. Uh, I'm still, st I started off now where we left off, so um, don't tell Jimmy B. Uh, but his face falls when we speak of matters, especially God, for we have reopened the subject which our man thought he had neatly evaded or entirely ignored. Why? We don't want to be accountable to anybody. We don't want to be obedient to anybody. We can't verbalize it. But I'll tell you, when I was done, I was ready for God in anything, anything that could help me. I don't want to forget how bad it was the first few months. Anybody have a bad first few months? A lot of fear. Oh, I didn't know how to live a spiritual life, but I had a nice man I met, and that was a God thing. And I called him every day, poor guy. And uh, he ran out of minutes on his phone. So this was the old days. So. I had to call him on the way home, and he'd answer his home phone. And uh, he was such a nice man. Actually, uh, six years later, he ended up dying of cancer, and I was his doctor. And he died. I sat there next to him when he died and uh, held his hand. How does that happen? And he was great. I loved him. He saved my life. We didn't read the book intensively. It gave me somebody to call. So, And then eventually, you won't believe this, but you know I used to call and talk about myself all the time. You, you can gather that. I am my favorite subject. But after a while, I called and asked about him. And it went from the focus on him and how I could help him. And it wasn't about me anymore. That, that, that's an amazing thing. That was a great experience in my life to be able to know him. And, and, and uh, be with him, but he helped me so much. And um, in fact, we started a big book study in my basement that now meets here tomorrow night to buy the book. I, had, I wanted to read the book. I didn't understand it, but I wanted to. So people used to come to my basement. You probably know some of them, six, seven, eight, nine people. And then I got this room here that we're at now. One of my patients was the secretary of the church. This was what? 
18 years ago. And so we started meeting here, and then eventually I started to do the uh, Experience the Big Book meetings after Curtis died. He died about three or four years later. And so we know how he felt. We have shared his honest doubt and prejudice. Some of us have been violently anti-religious. To others, the word God brought up a particular idea of him with which someone had tried to impress them during childhood. Now, I meet a lot of people who go to church and they believe in God, they believe in Christ, but this chapter is written to them too because they've never allowed God to run their life. I believed in God and prayed, and, but I never allowed him to work. I would say, I got this God. I'm in charge of this. And I did it without even thinking. Did any of you do that? We just ran the show. And, uh, and it says, uh, uh, we were bothered with the thought that faith and dependence upon a power beyond ourselves was somewhat weak. Of course, we, we, uh, but does, did that work for you? Did, did relying on yourself, and it was even cowardly. We looked upon this world of warring individuals, warring theological systems, and inexplicable calamity with deep skepticism. Now, we had the skepticism with our human mind. We looked askance at many individuals who claimed to be godly. How could a supreme being have anything to do with it all? And who could comprehend a supreme being anyway? Yet in other moments we found ourselves thinking when enchanted by a starlit night, who then made all this? There was a feeling of awe and wonder, but it was fleeting and soon lost. I've worked with some atheists or agnostics or whatever they want to say. They don't believe in God. I said, well, that's okay. I said, but I want to ask you, ask you a question. How did the wildebeest know to turn around in November and go a thousand miles in the other direction so they could fertilize the whole plain so all the animals live? And then eight months later, they turn around. I was in Iceland at this uh, fjord and there were these geese, I think geese. And she says, well, they're going to fly now and they're going to fly all the way to South America. You get it? Who told him to do that? And then I said, now, if we were a mile closer to the sun, how would it work out? And then if the moon wasn't just at the right place for the tides, and the, we wouldn't have any moisture. You see, when you look at nature, and that's what Paul says in Romans, I may be getting off, but he talks about how man, you can seek the creator in creation, and you just can't deny it. Now, being a physician, knowing and just understanding what one human cell does and how complicated it is, it's beyond. We're always finding new cancer treatments because we find new signals that are not going right in the cancer cell, and then we come up with medicines to change the signals. Who would have thought that? I like to ask the atheist to take a cup of coffee and have a drink. I said, well, how'd you get the coffee in your mouth? How'd you get the cup there? You know how many signals are required in the brain, to the muscles, and you don't even think about it. I think I had coffee this morning. And we do it, and we don't see the, and nobody could have created that, and except God. And so it really helps when you look at it that way. Um, 
Now, here's what they're going to tell us. This is an important paragraph on page 46. Uh, we have agnostic temperament. You see, a temperament have had thoughts. Let us make haste to reassure you. Now, here's what they found. If you want to recover, it says you have to lay aside prejudice, prejudgment. Now, they're talking about God, but we have prejudgment about everything. That's what alcoholism is. We make a judgment. And usually it's wrong. Our resentments are all wrong judgments, aren't they? Our fears are all wrong beliefs, and then we take wrong actions. So we have to lay aside prejudice. We have to be open-minded and willing. We have to be willing to go to any length. Doesn't it say that? And express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves. Now, we, when we read the second step proposition, exercise on fear, the psychologist, psychiatrist Henry Thiebaud says that for an alcoholic to be willing to believe that there's a power greater than themselves is such a major turn in our whole character. Because for us to do that, we have to be willing to let go of our way and see a new way. And he says when you really completely do that, you're no longer an alcoholic. Once you, you make this decision to turn your way from yourself to God, you're no longer alcoholic. And I think most people die on the first step and the second step. And we talk about, did you do step four? But when people keep, can't stay sober, it's because they haven't done the first and second step. And then you can't take step three till you've done one and two. Express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves. We commence to get results. So if you want results, just lay aside your prejudice. Here's a prejudice. I don't need to do this. I don't need to read this. I don't need to listen to the talks. You know, I'll go to meetings. I'll go to three meetings. Then you'll say, well, I'll go two. You see, and you, you're deciding what you need. So I have to lay aside all my prejudice. And I have to be open-minded, willing, as only the dying can be, right? It says, even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. It's God. We, a lot of people are always saying, well, why did God do it that way? And I don't like the way God did it. Have you ever heard that? I've heard it at Sunday school. Uh, well, God didn't ask our vote. See, we should not be asking management questions. Management questions is God's job. There was a man who used to say that all the time. I'm not in management. Why is a management question? And he was sober quite a while. He died of pneumonia. What, how many years ago? Six or seven years. He was a great guy. I've known him a long time. We would say, why is a management question? Uh, much to our relief, we discovered we did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and effect the contact with him. So you make your own conception of God. Everybody agree with that? But in the book, it says, I believe in working with others, it says, um, when you're talking to a man on page 93, tell him exactly what happened to you, stress the spiritual feature. If the man be agnostic or atheist, make it emphatic that he does not have to agree with your conception of God. He can choose any conception he likes, provided 
here's a provision that makes sense to him. The main thing is that he be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he live by spiritual principles. So it has to be a conception that makes sense. And it has to be, I heard somebody say, it has to be something that you go, can go to at three in the morning when things are bad and you can go to that conception and ask for help. <clears throat> Much to our relief, we discover we did not need to consider, uh, consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, our inadequate, is sufficient to make approach and affect the contact with him. It said as soon as we admitted the possible existence, as soon as you admit that of creative intelligence, spirits, universe, underlying the totality of things, we got, began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other steps. So once you admit this, you, you see you, you have no power, you admit there is a power, you're laying aside prejudice and, and a willingness to believe, you start to get a new sense of power and direction. You're moving in the right direction, you get it? You're moving away from yourself. Provided we took other steps, so that, that in itself. Now here's a, uh, here's a complicated statement. We found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek him. It's kind of the prodigal son. He came to himself. He decided that he could at least have food if he lived as a servant in his father's house, right? So he's, he's going back and he's planning the speech he's going to give to dad. And then the father sees him and runs to him. Now, uh, there's a lot to that. There's, there's so much in that, but we're not going to get into all that. But the father sees him and runs to him. And before he can start his, his spiel, dad says, kill the fatted calf. My son's come back. And that's what you find in AA, that when you seek God, he's just there. And he doesn't make too hard terms. And you feel a sense of forgiveness. You feel a sense of belonging. It's, it's, I can't explain it until you've done it. And so you learn to go to God all the time. That's this trust in God they talk about on page 68. We had fear because we had self-reliance, but we have to live on a different basis. Trusting and relying upon God. What's the hardest thing about trusting and relying on God? Trusting and relying on God. It's very hard because <laughs> we, we still want to do it ourselves. But when we do that and we do it enough and we go keep going to God, we see how he works in our lives and we trust him. So I say, oh, I have a fear. I had this biopsy and it took him a long time to get the results and I couldn't figure out what the pathologist was telling me. It's kind of, uh, and you know, and so, uh, I wasn't worried about it till like 12 days. And then I decided that it was going to be really bad. And I was planning who was going to talk at the funeral. Anybody? I'm trying to be funny. But I was getting fear. And then I said, you know, this is silly. Uh, it's going to be OK. It's a little thing. And uh, I put it in my God box. I said, God, remove my fear of whatever this is and direct my attention to I should be. Trusting him, relying on him. He's taking care of me. Uh, he'll be with me forever no matter what happens. Then I thought about the line on page 68. If we humbly rely on him and do as he would have us, we can handle calamity with serenity. And I did that when Curtis died. So 
it just went away. And then I found out it was it wasn't really anything bad. And I realized how much I'd worried about it up to that point. But the fear went away. Uh, that was on that Sunday, and then I had to worry about the Chiefs. You know, their their constant stress. I don't think I'm being very funny tonight, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, they give you some moments there. I have to put them in the God box. And it says, We found that God does make too hard terms for those who seek him. To us, the realm of spirit, the realm of spirit, the world of the spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. And I don't think there's anything in there that contradicts anything in the New Testament. If we seek God, the realm of the spirit is there for us. Roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive, or forbidding to those who earnestly seek him, is open, we believe, to all men. Isn't that powerful? It's a great, great thing. It gives you a lot of, when things are bad, you just read that. God's there. I'm going to stop there. Uh, Saturday, we're going to do the second step, uh, the second step in the big book. It's on the next page. And then we'll pick up some more. There's so much in this chapter. So I hope this was helpful. <laughs>